Hello everyone, I am Dr. Asim Malhotra and I'm delighted to be presenting this BGSM podcast on the best way to manage type 2 diabetes. This is part one where we're going to look at the latest research and speak to two very eminent scientists. And then part two next week, we're going to talk more specifically about what should you be eating if you have type 2 diabetes. A little bit of background about myself. I'm a consultant cardiologist and recently appointed as a visiting professor of evidence-based medicine at the Bahiana School of Medicine and Public Health in Brazil. And today I'm joined by two people who are, I would describe as leading scientists, doctors, researchers in the field of type 2 diabetes who have recently published a very interesting systematic review in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition entitled Effects of Low Carbohydrate Compared with Low-Fat Diet Interventions on Metabolic Control in People with Type 2 Diabetes, a Systematic Review, including Grade Assessments. And to their knowledge, this is the first comprehensively and specifically um, review to compare the effects of low carbohydrate with low fat food on glucose control, plasma lipid cardiovascular risk profile and body weight of persons with type 2 diabetes. So I'm just going to introduce my two guests today. The first is Professor Hanno Pell and he is an internist endocrinologist at Leiden University Medical Center and professor of diabetology since 2007. He practices internal medicine and has co-authored over 200 papers in peer-reviewed scientific journals primarily related to obesity and type 2 diabetes. He's been a member of the Dutch Health Council Standing Committee on Nutrition from 2008-2016. He's former president of the Dutch Obesity Partnership and currently co-chairs a joint effort at the Leiden University Medical School and the Dutch Organization of Applied Science to set up a knowledge and innovation center focusing on lifestyle interventions in healthcare. My second guest is Esther Van Zoren. She is a dermatologist also at the Leiden University Medical Center. But apart from that, and more relevant, is that her expertise lies in evidence-based medicine. She's been with Cochrane for almost 20 years, has held the position of key editor and methods editor for Cochrane Skin Group for several years and conducted over 30 systematic reviews on a wide variety of topics. Furthermore, she is a member of the GRADE Working Group and a recommendations editor for Dynamed Plus, as well as being associate editor for systematic reviews for the British Journal of Dermatology. Welcome, Hanno. Welcome, Esther. Thank you, Asim. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start with your systematic review, which I think is fascinating, uh, recently published, um, comparing low carb with low fat. And just to ask you sort of why you decided to do the systematic review first and foremost, and and really what were the key findings of this? Well, um, we decided to do this review because we knew that, um, of course, that nutrition is at at the root cause, is a root cause of type 2 diabetes. And yet there's much um, confusion, I would say, about what diet is actually best for type 2 diabetes. Um, Low-fat diets have been recommended for many, many years. But uh, in recent years, there was um, uh, a lot of publicity around low-carb diets being better than uh, low-fat. And in fact, if we, um, there was no, as far as we knew, no recent review of all the data that are out there in the literature comparing low-fat versus low-carb. Um, uh, the effects of low fat versus low carb on um, on the on the metabolic parameters in type two diabetes. So, so what we did was we compared 
the effects of uh, diets um, with, low, uh, with less than 40% carbohydrate versus diets with uh, less than 30% fat on basically the, um, all the components of the metabolic syndrome in, in patients with type 2 diabetes. And we looked at, uh, uh, at the effects um, for a, a max period of two years on different uh, time points. And in general, what we found was that low carb was better, um, not on every single time point, but it, it, that varied. But low carb was better in terms of HbA1c, in terms of, um, is, in terms of HDL cholesterol, in terms of uh, triglycerides, and in terms of uh, fasting glucose. Um, but not in terms of weight. There was similar weight loss uh, induced by the two diets. Um, and then uh, it is important to note that the, difference, the differences between the two diets in, in all these components were of minor uh, size, actually. Uh, and individual differences were, were of doubtful clinical significance. However, it is also important to note that every single component was in favor, every single change was in favor of uh, the low-carb diet. So in general, I would say that the, um, the risk profile, the cardiovascular risk profile, improved um, uh, a little bit better on, uh, on the low-carb diets. Hannah, that's fascinating. I think especially as you started with the initial um, sort of, you know, for many years, people have, the scientific community, has, has promoted low-fat diets specifically to type 2 diabetes because of fear of vascular complications. For type 2, that's the biggest fear. And the low-fat message has really been promoted or promulgated on the fear of obviously higher fat diets increasing cardiovascular risk. But interestingly, your review actually didn't find that to be the case. And more specifically, and correct me if I'm wrong, having read the paper, is that when you look at LDL, LDL cholesterol, which is traditionally thought to be the bad cholesterol, and that's where the fear of, of a higher fat diet has come from, um, there was no difference in LDL between the two groups as well. In my, in my, in my uh, view, in my perception, there were two reasons actually to um, advocate low fat diets in type 2 diabetes. That first of all, for the first one being uh, the one you mentioned, uh, risk, uh, risk of cardiovascular disease. The second one was, was body weight. Uh, and the simple reason for that is that um, um, the fats contain more calories per gram than uh, than carbohydrates and, and protein, and therefore every everyone reasons you get you get um, obese from from eating fat. And I, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason, there's no evidence for that. Um, so so I think um, there's very little argument to favor at this time to favor low-fat diets over uh, uh, low-carb diets for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Well, that's very, very interesting, Hanno. And I think uh, a lot of people will be, um, I think they will find that sort of statement actually very useful and perhaps quite challenging to their beliefs at the moment. But, you know, this is what the totality of evidence from your review is telling us. Now, in terms of looking at the quality of research, there's a lot of debate at the moment and discussion about various research and how good quality it is. Um, Esther, I know your particular expertise is in research methodology. And um, when you wrote this paper, I think you, you've obviously written quite clearly in the, in the title that it was using something called grade assessments. 
Are you able to explain, um, you know, for the for the layperson, for the the for the average healthcare professional uh, listening to the podcast, what grade is and why it's important? Yes, well, I'm quite aware that a lot of clinicians are not that familiar with the terminology, and grade is actually an acronym for grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, and that's actually still a mouthful of words. But it is a systematic and explicit and also very transparent approach for making judgments about certainty of evidence and strengths of recommendations. And it's also often used in guidelines. And nowadays, more than 100 organizations use GRADE, including, of course, Cochrane, WHO, but also NHS and BMJ have endorsed GRADE. And what you do actually, when you have an effect estimate, what you do with rating certainty of evidence you take also into account methodological flaws of studies. So if there's a high dropout rate, for example, or if people were not blinded, something like that. But it also looks at consistency of results across studies. And it also looks at sample size because is the effect estimate from a sample size of 20 people or is it a 1500? That makes a difference. What you also see with an effect estimate in small sample size, you have a very wide confidence interval, which can go from clinically important to almost no difference. So the bigger the sample size, the larger the sample size, the more precise your effect estimate. And then you also trust that effect estimate more. And it also looks at generalizability. So if I can give an example, for example, um, Randomized controlled trials, if you have evidence from randomized controlled trials, it always starts with high certainty of evidence. But then if you have, for example, a very small sample size, then you can what we call downgrade the evidence from high to lower to, for example, moderate or low or very low. So if there are, for example, a high number of dropouts, then you can, and there is also a small sample size, so then you have two reasons for downgrade the certainty of evidence, for example, from high to low. And if you have, for example, five well-conducted randomized controlled trials, everything is fine about that. But if three studies say treatment A is better and two say treatment B is better, then you have inconsistency of results. And then that is also a reason if there is a lot of heterogeneity to downgrade the certainty of evidence. And we felt, especially for this topic, because we knew that a lot of people would immediately jump on this uh, on this uh, review and that we thought we need to be as rigorous as possible in the methodology. So that's why, of course, we used great. Yes. And I, I look from your from your results, you have um, concluded essentially that given that using grade, you have concluded that the that there is overall majority you've said moderate certainty for these findings where you've noticed these longer term small improvements in these metabolic markers is that a fair assessment yes now that is true and actually we downgraded most time actually or for small sample sizes because for example for two-year data we often had only uh, results of one or two studies but at other time points, we had sometimes also a lot of heterogeneity between the studies. And that had also to do with that the studies were really clinically heterogeneous, that we had, for example, in the studies, 
for a part of the studies, the meals were, for example, prepared in the hospital. People were hospitalized, so then you are sure what they are eating, or they were home delivered. But sometimes people got a list uh, at home and they had to prepare the food themselves. And then you, of course, never know exactly what happens. If you are going to pull that, that then there you that is difficult because there were also almost half of the studies where what we call isocaloric, so the same uh, amount of energy was um, uh, eaten. But there were also studies that looked at weight, that aimed for weight reduction. So there was, for example, uh, a caloric restriction and other studies thought it was important in both arms to, um, for, to, to aim for weight, weight maintenance so the people were not supposed to lose weight. And if you take all these things together and you see that there, the, the studies really differed. And there were also some studies where uh, exercise was really encouraged. So if those studies where you have calorie restriction, exercise, and a dietitian that calls every week how things are going, that is completely different from studies where it didn't matter how much calories you were eating, no exercise was recommended. And that also uh, resulted sometimes in inconsistency of results. I think one interesting point that you've raised there is the fact that you said uh, half of the studies, they were pretty much restricted for calories in both arms. Is that correct? Is that what you were saying? And despite that, there still still seemed to be a superiority of low carb, which I think is really interesting because on the converse, in the real world, a lot of people who are advocates of low carb, who have gone low through low carb themselves, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast, they feel one of the most interesting or beneficial ways of, of adopting a low carb approach is it doesn't involve counting calories because by definition, when you go low carb, it tends to be more satiating, you feel full. But despite that, and we see in the real world, we seem to think that that, that seems to be an effective approach. But even in your, in your analysis of the isocaloric uh, evidence in the studies there seemed to be still be a benefit of low carbohydrate which is which I think is fascinating now on this on this note of uh, Esther with your um, you know your expertise in research methodology and, and Hanno as well so, you know you're two people that have have analyzed and looked at the totality of data not just in type 2 diabetes but in general in, in this area um, there's been a lot of media hype uh, <laughs> actually last week which uh, has caused a, a bit of a controversy um, certainly on social media that low carbohydrate diets uh, could be linked to a shortened lifespan. Now, with your expertise, knowing all the data, um, do you think that is the case? Should we be worried about, is there any mechanism or biological mechanism you can see that low carbohydrate diets may shorten lifespan? Uh, No, there isn't. Um, The only thing that I can imagine, and in fact, uh, the paper that you refer to actually mentions this, is when you um, replace carbohydrates with with animal protein, uh, there there may be, um, so if you eat low-carb diets with high animal protein uh, contents, uh, that may increase uh, mortality. But if you don't do that and you replace carbohydrates with plant-based foodstuffs, then, then you're okay as far as as far as I'm concerned. And in terms, because you know, I, I can't think of a mechanism that would um, curtail uh, lifespan when you eat low carb. Um, in fact, uh, the opposite is true uh, because many many studies in model organisms 
actually show that um, if you um, if you diminish uh, the insulin and uh, and IGF one signaling, you extend lifespan and you promote health span. You extend not only health lifespan but also health span. And by eating um, less carbs and and let me say that I think that less carbs is not as far as I'm concerned, the best term. It's it's about less processed um, uh, starch and sugar. So if you eat less processed starch and sugar, you lower insulin levels. Um, and then if you also restrict uh, animal protein, you also lower IGF-1. And then I think uh, you will get the, the, the longest uh, health and lifespan. And and so so why low carb diets uh, would would curtail lifespan? I, I really I can't understand that. So essentially, Hannah, from a biological mechanism, it should should be the opposite way. Essentially, I think I think the recent media hype also was an associational study, which you know obviously has all its limitations. But in terms of biological mechanism, just 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 explain a little bit IGF one uh, and what what does it stand for and what what is it linked to. IGF-1 is uh, insulin-like growth factor one, and it's um, it's linked to um, to basically to protein intake. Animal proteins are are specifically very um, uh, very active in promoting IGF-1 production by the liver. It's a uh, it's a growth signal, just like insulin, actually. And um, we know that um, that continuously high growth signals in our blood. Uh, promote all kinds of disorders um, uh, and cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, and um, uh, and probably diabetes as well. So, so it's it's um, uh, we have to um, take care of those growth factors and, and lower them as much as possible. And you do that by restricting uh, the starch and sugar. Now, carbohydrates also have these um, fibers. And um, so low carb diets without fibers, I'm not sure whether that is healthy, actually. I think we need fibers. Our, our um, gut microbiota, the, the bacteria in our gut um, need fibers to stay healthy. And our immune system needs these fibers to stay healthy. So I think we need to eat fibers, carbohydrate fibers, but we don't need, and fibers are basically in, in vegetables and fruit um and um and and there's no fiber in uh, in processed uh, carbohydrates like the starchy products and, and sugars. Sure, sure. Hannah, on that note, you mentioned the animal protein link to IGF-1. Is there also any link between uh, excessive consumption of processed starch and sugars to IGF-1 as well? I don't, I don't think so, no. Um, it's particularly insulin that is stimulated by starch and sugar. And insulin has a similar, it's, it's a similar hormone, you know, it's, it's, in, it's insulin and insulin-like growth factor. So it's very similar. Um, and uh, so, but, but IGF-1 is, is promoted by, by the uh, proteins, protein intake, and um, insulin is, is obviously stimulated by, uh, by starch and sugar. So Hanno, um, another interesting uh, debate around low-carbohydrate diets is at what level does the uh, low carb become low carb? Now, 
Um, you've used a cutoff in this particular review of less than 40% of energy based upon those trials. But many people actually will be adopting much lower carbohydrate consumption, ketogenic diet, which is, is, is much lower than 40%. Um, in terms of consumption of carbohydrate, and obviously they are reporting certainly anecdotally, and there is some data from diabetes.co.uk from Verta Health that much lower intakes of carbohydrates are having even better control for type two diabetes. What's your particular view on this? Uh well, on, uh, I think on, on theoretical grounds, um, I would expect ketogenic diets to be much more effective than um, than low fat diets in type two diabetes for the simple reason that starch and sugar are the most important sources of glucose in the circulation. However, um, as far as we could find, there's no evidence in the literature that these um, keto low, very low carb ketogenic diets are actually better than very low fat diets. So what I would love to see is a study where um, in, in real life, so it's not, not calorie controlled, but I would love to see a, a ketogenic diet versus a very low fat diet um, uh, on, uh, on, the, on the metabolic profile in type two diabetes. That's very interesting. So I think that's probably something you would say is the next step, really, in terms of the uh, the next type of review. And Esther, can I just come back to you in terms of your analysis um, of this uh, of low carbon, low fat in this review? Was there any indication from those individual trials of exactly what people were eating? Of course, we know what their calories were coming from, but what sorts of foods was it? You know, was it starch? Was it sugar even in the low carb group? Was it ultra processed food? You know, do we know what these people were eating? Well, actually, there were quite limited data on the exact composition of what was eaten, and information of the quality of the macronutrients was often lacking. However, in the later published uh, studies, this from the last 10 years, there was more details were uh, provided about uh, the food in the groups. And actually, in both groups then, so both low-carb and low-fat, most time in the later uh, conducted studies, it was basically real food, no processed food, or there was at least also the suggestion to um, to avoid uh, processed food, and also to include nuts, olive oil, and in both arms, uh, not more than ten percent saturated fat. So, um, although for a lot of studies details were lacking, the later conducted studies provided more um, uh, information about that. That's really interesting. Okay, well, we can discuss more, I think, in part two next week, what sort of foods um, people should be eating from our own clinical experience. Uh, and Hanno, as a diabetologist, I'd be very interested to, to see how you approach this with your patients and what you prescribe to them. But just before we finish, um, I think there's one other key uh, finding from your review that I wanted to ask you about. You, clearly, there was a much more marked uh, improvement in glucose control and cardiovascular risk factors in the low carb approach, certainly up to one year, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that for me suggests also that may also help uh, have a much bigger impact certainly in medication use. Is there any, uh, can we conclude anything about medication use in the, in the short term? Is it, is it better with low carb? And therefore that certainly would be a, a big advantage to patients. Unfortunately, that was not reported in many of the studies. Um, however, we found a couple, I think about four or five, that did report uh, medication use. And every single one of them actually showed that uh, the dose of the medications was lowered in the group 
that used low carb and not in the group that used low fat. So it seems that low carb is better than uh, low fat uh, in terms of medication use, but we can't be sure. Okay, well, let's just conclude then. Um, So we've had this systematic review, we looked at the totality of evidence comparing low carbohydrate diet versus low fat. And essentially, it's very clear from from the conclusion that this should at the very least be an option for the management of type 2 diabetes. It appears in many ways to be better than a low fat approach. And, um, you know, as a result of all of this, do you think that it's time really to update and change the dietary guidelines, certainly in the management of type 2 diabetes, um, Esther and Hanno? Well, I, I do believe that the emphasis on low fat should be really be removed from the, from the guidelines. I think at the very least, one, could, one can say that it is up to the patient's preference, what he or she wants. And that's obviously a very important um, approach that we will maybe talk about ne- next week. But, um, uh, but I think in general, one can say that low carb um, and low, particularly low starch and sugar is, is better for a patient with type 2 than, um, than the low fat approach. Yes, and what I would like to add also for future studies is that it is important that for future studies that there are more details about the exact uh, content of what people are eating, that that is clear also for for the readers, but that there's also more emphasis on satisfaction and quality of life, because that was actually not addressed at all, only in two studies. And I think it's also important to know, uh, especially satisfaction, and after that, of course, quality of life, because it is what we did see also from the studies that there was let, less adherence in both groups over time. And the better uh, the diet is, of course, if, if people like what they are eating and they feel uh, satisfied with what they are eating, it's easier to sustain the diet. So I think it's also important to include that as an outcome for future studies. I think that's a really good point, Esther. And I think you're, you've, you've hit on a really key component of, of evidence-based medicine, which is taking into consideration patient preferences and values. In fact, on that note, I only recently returned from Brazil and, and uh, met the director of the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine there, Professor Luis Correa in, in Salvador. And he made a very important point that if it's not in keeping with anything that we do in medicine, clinical decision-making, if it's not in keeping with the patient preferences and values, it will not work. Yeah. Uh, this is also the same for exercise because we're now talking about diets. But if you want to improve people's health, uh, exercise and stress reducing mechanism are also important. And with exercise, I think it's also important that people need to find an exercise which is sustainable for them to do. And it doesn't have to be always CrossFit, walking every day for 30 minutes or going to your work on a bike is already, I think, helpful. And I think all these uh, components are important for having a healthy life. Yes, I think do what you enjoy, absolutely, whether it's uh, walking, cycling, dancing, you know, that, that's that's the key important message, isn't it? And uh, actually a nice way to finish for podcast part one for the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, and uh, thank you so much, both of you, um, for, for your all your work. And if people want to get access to uh, the paper, how can how can they get hold of this uh, this publication, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition? Well, maybe a lot of uh, hospitals do have access to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And if not, I'm the first author 
uh, on the paper. They can always send me an email and I will send uh, the paper to them. That's fantastic, Esther. Thank you so much. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you.